biblical texts are afraid of telling you, look what God has done for you, now live differently. So I, I often just try to tell people, your habits are not going to change God's love for you, period. But God's love for you should, of course, change your habits. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. This week's episode is a replay of the most downloaded episode of the Habit Podcast. At the beginning of 2002, I spoke with Justin Whitmore early about the formation of better habits. Justin is the author of The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose in an Age of Distraction. Here at the beginning of 2024, I thought it would do us all some good to revisit this most helpful conversation. Uh, Justin Whitmore early I'm so glad that you are on the, um, the Habit podcast today. We're actually recording this in September, but the episode is, I'm planning on releasing it as our New Year's episode. Uh, because I think the things you talk about are, are so important as people are thinking about what, how they're going to arrange their lives in the coming year. So, so thanks for being here. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, I, I, it is an honor to be on a podcast called The Habit. This is a dear yeah, topic right. to me. <laughs> it's like you can't get a better invite than this. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So you, uh, you're a lawyer. Um, yes. And you. Um, came to lawyering uh, with a with a, a real sense of calling, right? You tell that story in your book. That's right. You, That's right. You had been a, a missionary in China and you kind of realized, wait a minute, I, I need to, my, my calling maybe, or my calling is the law. Um, mm-hmm. And even, but even so, as you pursued that calling, you bought into, maybe I should say, I don't know if that's the right word. Uh, I'll let you yeah, it, throw no, words it to is. it. You, you, that sense of calling still, it didn't rescue you uh, from the, some habits, I should say, that, that, that were harmful. And that's you're right. the only person who's experienced it. So tell me, tell me about that. Yes. So I was a missionary in China for many years before I was ever a lawyer. And so I am a bit of a lawyer by calling more than choice. So I spent almost five years in China doing missionary work, which by the way, during that time, I was always writing. I was writing a lot of fiction and poetry during those years. But I had a really pivotal experience one day on the streets of China where I saw four things. I saw prostitutes, drug dealers, black market thieves, and a political protester, all within two minutes. And you can imagine which of those four was arrested immediately. It was the political protester. And it was one of those light bulb moments where I realized that the way we set up our legal infrastructure matters to regular people. And being a missionary, it was just a, a light bulb moment for me saying, oh, you can be missional within the law. It matters. And so I went back to America the next year, uh, really as a mission missionary to law. I, I, I found myself on a call. And um, that was going great for me, except for the fact that, as you just mentioned, I ran into law headlong like a man on a call. And so while I was doing really well, like, you know, graduating around the top of my class and getting my dream job in mergers and acquisitions, I was also unconsciously assimilating to all the usual habits of a top law school student and an ambitious young lawyer. And I had no idea at the time that those habits were forming me as much, if not more, 
then the call in my head was forming me. And when I had an anxiety collapse, that that's it, unfortunately it took a really serious anxiety collapse to wake me up to the fact that I was not just formed by what my head was thinking. I was formed a lot, if not more, but what my habits were doing to my heart. Yeah. You you talk about in your book the that gap between what we believe in our heads and what we do with our with our bodies, really. I mean, or, or, um, mm-hmm. or it, it, at one point you use a phrase, I've got it in my notes here somewhere. Um, how now, now it's based. Oh, that our lives are formed by our habits rather than our hopes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's a really interesting idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell me more about it. Yeah. And I, I'm admittedly, I'm a writer. I work with words. I'm a lawyer. I'm prone to hyperbole sometimes. Hopes matter. What we believe sure. matters. What we think in our head matters. Ideas matter. I think what I didn't know was how much also the habits of our ordinary days and weeks, the things that we don't matter, the things that we think are ordinary are actually extraordinary and matter a lot. And so, you know, for me, it, it, was, it took the anxiety collapse to wake me up and sort of say, how is it that, and, and by the way, it was a pretty bad collapse. Like I ended up in a place where I was, I was not able to sleep without having a couple drinks to go to bed or taking sleeping pills. Mm-hmm. This was not a short thing. It was months long, almost a year long. Hmm. So I, I had to wrestle with this question of how did the missionary to law get converted to the nervous medicating lawyer in such short order? I mean, it was a quick conversion. And I, the whole time I'm wrestling in, in my head because I'm not believing anything different. My hmm. hopes are no different than they were a year, a couple years ago. And so I really started, I mean, I was reading about this at the time, probably providentially, but I really started to think about what the habits of my life were doing to me. And it wasn't until actually I had a, this sort of lightning bolt moment with a couple of friends where I asked them to keep me account- accountable to some daily and weekly habits that I thought were too small to matter, but it was just one more thing I would try. And my life started to drastically change. And we'll get into you know, what some of those habits are. And I ended up writing about them in the common rule. But the important for the thing for me in that moment was I started to realize through life practice that it is really possible for your, your head to go one way and your habits to go the other way. And there's a gap. There's a tension there. And the, the big, big important point for people to think about is when your head goes that way and your habits go the other way, your heart always follows the habit. And as I started to realize that my heart was formed by my habits, I started to realize there's an area of my spirituality, my discipleship to Jesus my whole life that I just had not considered. I had no idea how important my habits were to who I was becoming spiritually, professionally, as a writer, all of the above. You talk about the importance of thinking of our habits as liturgy as liturgy. Yes. Why yes. is that, you know, why is that terminology important to you? That terminology is important to me uh, to make a rhetorical point about the nature of worship and habits. I say that that way because I've had some friends disagree and say, you know, capital L liturgy is what the church does, you know, at certain times. Um, my point, and I think I'm right, is that habits and liturgies function very, very similarly. They're both things that we do over and over, semi-consciously to unconsciously. They're both things that form us and change us. The big difference between habit 
and liturgy is one of them admits that it's about worship, yeah. liturgy. Yeah. And, and habits might obscure what we worship, but if you understand the basic premise of the Christian worldview, you know, we're not made to have like on-off times of like, okay, I'm worshiping now and I'm neutral now. Uh-huh. But I, th- I think it was maybe Andy Crouch who said at one time, maybe in the TechWise family, um, you know, we're not cars. Human beings aren't cars. We don't have, we don't have a neutral gear. Uh-huh. Um, Jamie Smith calls us existential sharks. You know, we're always moving towards something. And, and habits take us somewhere. And so I really think it's important to understand the liturgical nature of habits in our everyday life. They're ordinary patterns that we repeat over and over, and they change who we are because worship is in them. As the psalmist says, those who make and trust in idols will become like them. If habits are worship and worship changes us, then habits are changing our heart. And yeah. so that liturgical nature of habits, thats I think that's really important for anyone to understand. You're, you have a daily liturgy of habits that are forming your spirituality. Most people have no idea what they are. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying we have habits, whether we think about our habits or not. Bingo. Okay. So um, your book, the book we're talking about today, in any case, is The Common Rule, Purpose for an Age of Distraction. What do you mean by the common rule? So when I was having this big life change and I was starting to live according to these habits of uh, having a day off every week from work, turning my phone off a certain hour every day, making sure I went to the scripture before I went to my phone, having a daily meal. I was doing all these little things that we call keystone habits. And we could talk about what that means in a moment. But I had a really funny experience where my pastor asked me how I was doing because he knew that I'd have a really dark and tough year. I told him like, I'm really, I am actually really moving into a good place. And I got to tell you, it's some of it is because I'm starting to work on these spiritual disciplines as daily habits. And I actually have a spreadsheet of them if you'd like to see them. So I'm really excited about this. I got all this stuff written down and I show him and uh, he, you know, he has that warm pastoral smile on his face that, you know, that's like half like you're crazy and half like, you know, I'm so glad that the Lord's working in your life. But he goes, Oh, I see. You've created a rule of life for yourself. Mm-hmm. And in the famous words of somebody who would go on to write a book about it, I, I said, you know, what's a rule of life. I had no idea. Yeah, I had no idea that the church for thousands of years had appreciated what I was having my epiphany about. And that is that spiritual disciplines, habits form us. Even so much so that spiritual communities for millennia, um, usually monasteries and largely associated with either the Catholic or the Anglican church, but not not only, many, many Christians across um, centuries have had this idea of the rule of life, which put simply is a set of carefully chosen communal habits that are intended to form that community and the love of God and neighbor. And as I started to look into this concept, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm reading all the sociology and psychology and about habit and how they mm-hmm. form us and how even people who have no interest in what Christianity says or means will tell you that the way to change really sticky addictions or problems or patterns in your life is through communal habits. I mean, this is like the foundation of AA um, and I started to realize that, oh my gosh, like what all these psychologists and sociologists are writing about habit, it's been in the rule of life all along. Like we're formed by communal habits. You don't do personal New Year's resolutions if you want to change. Mm, yeah. And let me just repeat that. 
right? Because mm-hmm. we're, you know, our, our listeners are in a time where everybody's thinking about their new goals for the new year. You cannot change through these wild, ethereal resolutions that you make for yourself and try to carry out personal, per, uh, individually. We change through small, iterative, communal habits. And the wisdom of the rule of life has been showing that for centuries. So when I decided to start writing about this, I, I styled it in the idea of what would a rule of life for the common person look like? But, and what would it look like to really embrace the communal nature of this, that we need to be practicing these sorts of ways of life and community, mm-hmm. not alone. And that title, The Common Rule, was born from there. So the common rule is eight habits. That's right. Eight, and they're four daily small and habits. four weekly. Four, yeah. four daily, four weekly, not earth-shattering things. No. No, they're built on the idea of keystone mm-hmm. habits. And a keystone habit um, in, in habit psychology is one small thing that tends to change a lot of other things. Like if you just do the small thing. Uh, exercise is a classic keystone habit. Studies will show that if a person in a study is told to exercise just once a week and they actually do it, other things like diet, they they start spending less on their credit cards. They start changing the way they eat. They'll, they'll smoke less. They'll drink less. They, they're nicer at home. It's wild. You know, all the things that you read about. Um, exercise matters. That'd be a whole other topic. But the... Um, it's the, it's the classic example of a keystone habit. Change one small thing and all these other dominoes start to fall. And so when I was working on distilling some of these habits into the common rule and saying, what, what are the things that really make a difference for people, the smallest things that can have the largest magnitude of difference? I tried to think about spiritual keystone habits. Mm-hmm. And I ended up with eight of them that I, that I recommend in the book. Well, since we're, is it telling, is it, is it too much of a spoiler alert if you tell us what the eight uh, habits Not are? Not at all. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm always, I'm always reticent to just list them off because I know it's going to happen to any listener or reader. They're going to say, oh my gosh, like that's a lot. We can't, I can't do all that. So I will only preface by saying, hear me on this. What is a lot is the default American life. Yeah. What is really heavy and burdensome is continuing to live in your current patterns because America has a rule of life for you. And it's full of all these invisible habits. Your phone is probably the the key medium through which most of these habits come. And you feel exhausted and stressed and anxious and depressed and vain and consumeristic because you're living according to the American rule of life. And you have all these unexamined habits that are like, you know, the burden on your back in Pilgrim's Progress. It is heavy to carry. Yeah. And by the way, let me just say, when I see when I hear the eight, the the eight habits, they they seem surprisingly light to me. Oh well, good, good. I mean, you're a wise man then. Uh, <laughs> when, no, that's I not start, to say I've know, been doing them right, but they seem light when I. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and so you know, on that note, let me just give you a, a high flyover. So the four daily habits are scripture before phone, number two, three times of kneeling prayer a day morning, noon, and evening. Uh, Number three, a daily communal meal with others. And number four, an hour with your phone off every evening. And if you just look, we could talk about any one of them, but they're intended, obviously, um, to really push your life away from the incessant and addictive use of technology and really put technology in its place. It has a good place. It has a proper place, but to put it there. 
and to say what it, what it would it look like for a day to be rooted rooted in real concentration and real work, real community, and the classic spiritual disciplines of prayer and scripture, which by the way are keystone habits by another name. Like we, the church has done them for thousands of years. They really do matter. And so those those four daily habits are are, are for me. I'll just say for me, I still do them. All of, I mean, I'm six, seven years, you know, after the, I, this, I'm still living according to all these habits and they change my life every day. They challenge me every day, sort of, but I'll tell you what's amazing about the power of habit is that you stop thinking about them because they're habitual. You know, right. I did, I did all of this, you know, today. I never thought about it one time. Right. And, and that's the, that's the beautiful power of a good, carefully chosen spiritual habit at, at first. It's hard. It's like, oh yeah, I got to look at scripture before my phone. But then at some point, it it's just weird to look at your phone first thing in the morning. You're almost like, why would I do that? That's yeah. that's awful. And that's where you want to be, where you're so countercultural that it's it would be strange to roll over in your bed and start reading your phone, which I did for years, by the way. Right. This is why I, I, I heard someone the other day say, um, "Do you um, do you look at your phone before you go to the bathroom in the morning or while you're going to the bathroom in the morning? Because those are the only two choices. <laughs> those are the only two. <laughs> Which, of course, they're not the only two choices, as, as you're demonstrating. And as you said, the whole point of habit is that you're not thinking about them. That's, that's the, almost the definition of habit, is your, your yes. brain gets to shut off. I don't, have, I don't in the morning say, let's see, uh, do I put on my socks before my shoes or after my shoes? Let me think this through. You know? I, I don't that's think exactly about right. And I don't, you know, I mean, and if you see a, a 15-year-old who has to think about driving, they're terrible drivers because they're thinking the whole time. That's exactly right. I, one of the most interesting sports interviews I ever heard was a player being interviewed after um, a playoff game, it's baseball. He, he hit the game-winning uh, home run, and they're asking him, what were you thinking up there? You know, it's like bottom of the ninth, two outs. And, and, the, and the player said, I wasn't thinking. I was trying to go brain dead. Because we, <laughs> athletes understand this. The most important things uh, that you do sink down into your bones and your body, and you just turn on autopilot. And we look at a great baseball swing or you know, a running back doing great moves down the, the field, and they can do these wild things that we can't do, not because they've thought about them so much or they're so smart, it's because they've practiced them so often that it is literally second nature. I, by the way, I as, think as, this is also... Oh, I'm sorry, Justin, go ahead. Well, I... I, I'm interested in what you're going to say because I, I think it. What we want to do as regular disciples of Jesus is say, how do we make like excellent and beautiful lives second nature because of practice? Yeah. I think that's that's real, full sanctification where you don't just want to do the right thing, you actually have trained yourself. Uh, you you don't just know the right thing; you've trained yourself to want and to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's like the first question you ask, right? This, there's this difference, this gap between, you know, our head and our habit. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to say, let's turn both on. Mm-hmm. So we don't just know the right thing to do. We actually practice it on a daily basis. That's not burdensome. That's beautiful. Yeah. Part of the reason that it's so great to shut your brain off in these habits is it leaves you so much more brain space for things that you do need to be thinking about that you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We could talk about that for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, that's why I, I think the Jesus's phrase that, you know, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light is, is so amazingly true. The more that I think about the spiritual disciplines, 
there are all these added benefits that you never thought about. I mean, that when you are a, actually become a person who actually prays instead of somebody who just talks about praying, which for years, years, most of my life, I've been a person who's like, oh, I'll pray for you or I'll pray about that. Never prayed because I didn't have the habit of praying. You know, prayer to me was like something I might eventually do for three hours in a dark closet, you know, in some sanctimonious prayer room. But what? But now it's something I just, I just do. I just do every day by habit. And there's incredible benefits of, you know, your, your mental space is now opened up to God, opened up to concentration, opened up to peace in a way that when you live a scattered life without prayer or silence or meditation, there are side effects. Um, and so, yeah, I just agree with that, both in the productivity sense and in the spiritual sense. And it's amazing that God made us to, so that they overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, I, I have completely interrupted you. You only made it halfway through the, your habit. So the, the daily habits are prayer. Before, I'm sorry, scripture before a phone, kneeling prayer three times a day, at least a one meal with meal. other people, and then right. the phone off for an hour. Which, right. by the way, it's ludicrous that we should even have to say that out loud. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there are and, four, and for me, that's that's actually like a turn it off. Uh, you know. It's almost a joke, but you know, Apple makes it so you have to hold those buttons at the same time for a really long time, and then it asks you, "Do you want to call nine one one or do you want to turn this phone off?" Like, if you can't believe that you actually want serious is happening here. Um, And something serious happens in your mind when you actually shut down the device because suddenly you have this moment where it's like, "Oh my gosh, I'm not reachable," and that's exactly what I'm trying to offer to people: be be unreachable, irresponsible. You know, I'm a dad and a husband and a and a, a lawyer, you know, a lot of my life is predicated on being reachable most of the time. But sometimes at certain places, it's just really, really wise for me to become unreachable an hour a day. But point of a good conversation is to get distracted and go down tangents. Yeah, right. <laughs> Coming back to the weekly habits, as you said. Okay, yeah, weekly um, habits. The weekly habits are um, having a vulnerable conversation with a friend once a week, curating your media hours to a limited time. So you're actually watching uh, intentional content sometimes and then turning it off other times, fasting from something once a week. And then this one's incredible. You, you know, most of your listeners are never going to heard of this wild idea, Sabbath once a week. <laughs> I made that one up. I'm really proud of it. Uh, so actually taking a day of rest um, once a week. So those are, those are the, the disciplines of the, the week, fasting, Sabbath, curating your media and hour of conversation with friends. Yeah. Um, and then uh, using your phone for the purpose of setting up alerts to pray three times a day and have a, have a meal with people and, and, and using your phone to call a friend to have a conversation with. I um, am really comfortable with irony and paradox. <laughs> and the, it is actually probably really helpful for everybody hearing this to know the amount of my life spent on my computer and phone is probably more than most of mm-hmm. you you listening i mean i'm a i'm a corporate lawyer i'm i'm a writer i i am you know my life is pred- my my life's work is predicated on typing and sending words <laughs> but um i think i can do that well because i've set up some guardrails of limitation where, where, you know, it's like a race car. I can drive really fast and really safe now because I know there are guardrails. And to me, the idea of having those off times, having those priorities like scripture before phone, 
having these weekly rhythms of like, well, I'm just not on my computer, you know, this, this night of the week or that night of the week, or that's the way to do it. Um, mm-hmm. I increasingly liken social media, but really screens to alcohol mm-hmm. for people um, to say that, you know, some people just shouldn't use, use it. That, and that's fine. Some people don't want to, that's fine. Most people do. And, mo- and but everybody needs limits. Yeah, you know, we widely recognize that it's a problem if you're just sipping from a flask all day. That that is a major, major issue, right? And it's dangerous. It's changing you. It's ruining your relationships, and you need help. It's rewiring your brain. It's, it's rewiring your brain. You know, I think it's wild that we we can slip from sip from the flask of Facebook all day every day, and nobody thinks it's an issue. Nobody yeah. thinks that, but it's doing all the same things. It's rewiring your brain. It's changing your relationships. Um, it's it's changing your mood and your mental health. It's starkly affecting your social circles and your ability to be a friend on all this stuff. And, and I don't think social media is entirely evil. I don't think technology is bad. I think there's a lot of good uses for it. But if we Christians don't pave the way for here's how to use this well, here's how to use it to become a more loving person, here's how to use it to become a more beautiful person, here's how to use it to become more like Christ. Well, then we will adopt our culture's patterns of here's how to use it to become more beautiful, connected, enviable, consumeristic, unjust, vain, and we'll be formed in that rule of life. So, I, yeah, I am all about uh, the right use of technology. I'm not a Luddite. I would not counsel most people to get rid of it. I would counsel most people to adopt a rule of life for technology. That That is what you need. Much more than a New Year's re- resolution, you need small, concrete, daily, and weekly habits that will guide you out of screen addictions and into the love of people that are sitting next to you on a couch every night. This is our call. Yeah. Um, you, you're talking about habits that make room for love. Um, and, and a recurring theme in your book is a movement away from legalism. Yes. And, uh, and toward love. And so talk me through this. Um, the, uh, it's not hard to imagine somebody uh, viewing um, you know, a commitment to habits as being possibly moving us toward legalism. Absolutely. Yes. Um, how do habits actually free us from legalism and free us to love? It's such an important question. And it's, I completely understand people get, a little squirrely or they're like, well, you're, it's called the common rule. You know, this is a, do I have to follow these rules to be, um, it's actually important to know that the, the, the Latin root of the word in the rule of life did not mean a law you had to obey, but it connoted a bar of a, or the idea of a trellis. And that was that here's a pattern of habits to let life grow on. Mm -hmm. So a rule is sort of a nod to that ancient word, but to directly answer your question, it is not legalistic to commit to a set of habits. It, what, what legalism is, is the belief that what you do will, will save you. And what we are talking about is firmly in the realm of sanctification, not justification. So what's really important is to know our habits will not change God's love for us. We are saved by grace that is through faith, that is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. We have nothing to boast about. You know, this is Ephesians. But it's so beautiful and instructive that the next verse in Ephesians 2 says, for we are God's 
craftsmanship. You know, we are God's masterpiece created to do good works. Mm-hmm. So the Bible, Paul, you know, none of the none of the biblical texts are afraid of telling you, look what God has done for you. Now live differently. So I, I often just try to tell people, your habits are not going to change God's love for you, period. But God's love for you should, of course, change your habits. Mm-hmm. And so we're we are entirely in the realm of what it means to say, if God's grace is really that wonderful, true, real, and life-changing, wouldn't it make sense to set your life up so that you're living on a slant, constantly falling into the arms of that love, like li- li- living on a slant, constantly looking to that love? And I often try to remind people, what's legalistic, what often ends up you know, resulting in legalism is not having any program of habits. Because for me, for example, I'll just take the scripture before phone example. You know, in my, I lived my early years of lawyering, looking at my emails first thing every day, all day. And I might've thought at the time, like, I should probably really not do this, but I don't want to be legalistic about it. I'll just try not to do it. Well, as we know with new year's resolutions, theoretically trying to do something, I'm going to try to be a nicer person this year, but you're going to fail. You know, (laughs) you, you, uh, those don't work. So it never worked for me. I, I continued to look at my phone every morning because my phone actually was a habit-inducing mechanism and habits work. And what was happening is that unconsciously by doing this every day, I was starting to envision my day. And the most important thing about the day is, you know, how can I get done what so-and-so on, in my inbox needs done today? As if I'm not a worthwhile person, if I don't do that. Ding, ding, ding. That's legalism. My, my sense of identity and who I was was predicated on what I could accomplish today. When I started to commit to the rule of scripture before phone, yes, it was a rule. But did I do it because I wanted to, God to love me? No, I did it because, oh my gosh, I'm constantly falling into these legalistic identities without this discipline. This discipline, and this is where I think we could really get talking, this discipline leads to freedom. As it turns out, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do at any given moment. Freedom is the ability to do what you are created to do. And that actually takes limits, boundaries, and discipline to achieve that freedom. But it is for freedom that Christ set us free. This is one of the most fulfilling things that humans were meant for, to be able to live as God created you to live. Yeah. I mean, you were uh, something from your book that really resonated with me is you think about how many times you wake up in the morning thinking, oh, I got to go. I got to get right now because I've got this, this and this to do. This person yes. will be mad at me. Uh, I've let this person down and um, or, you know, treating work as if it were some sort of, um, you know, uh, medication. Right. I, I feel yes. so bad about yes. myself right now. I'm going to get out of bed because I can't lay in this bed any longer. I'm going to get up and do something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way you talk about prayer is sort of re reframing and rewiring, you know, in that morning state, I got to get out of bed because I'm going to turn out to be a worthless human being if I don't get out of bed right now. Right. Right. That, that initial prayer, that scripture before phone reframes that day and, 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 and helps me to, to say, you know, to embrace some other, some other identity, as you said. Yes. Yes. I, uh, because I'm in the habit of it, not because I'm a great person. I mean, I'm a messed up person. Like I, I have, you know, you just have my wife on the podcast and you can hear about all my flaws. Right. But this morning by habit, I knelt 
immediately upon waking and did my morning prayer, which I often do. I've lived so much of my life in exactly what you described, where I wake up in this awful sense of guilt and lateness and inadequacy. I've done something wrong. I stayed up too late. I woke up too late. I'm behind. I get so much to do today. But but this morning, like many mornings in the past five years now, I've done this. I just woke up and began with a short prayer of gratitude. And I actually literally remember this morning, the sense of joy that I felt of like, oh, I have another day to live. That's not because I'm such a holy and amazing person. It's the, it's the power of grace of God that comes through the spiritual disciplines. Prayer changes you. And these morning prayers for me have just changed the way that I enter the day from yeah. guilt to gratitude. Yeah. And I am so grateful. Yeah. I'm so grateful that, that, that the Lord offers disciplines like that, that change. I mean, it's, it's just a, it's a gift to change your day that way. It's not a burden. It's a gift. Yeah. You say that, that uh, I might be paraphrasing. I don't know if I'm paraphrasing or quoting in the morning, you're rejecting the false prayers that are, that, that become yeah. our default. Yeah. In part, because those prayers are given to us by, you know, people who are manipulating our habits through the technology or, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so in the morning I'm rejecting the false prayers, embracing a, a true prayer uh, one that, as you said, reminds us of what's real and what's true. Um, um, and uh, we need to get into we need to get into this idea of um, language that some of our language um, uh, affirms what's reality, and some of our language creates new realities. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that in a mm-hmm. minute, I hope, Lord willing. Um, but then the mid, you know, in the midday prayer, as you, as you, you know, it's, it's three times a day that you recommend um, kneeling prayer. And in the middle of the day, when my morning prayer has kind of worn off and I'm, I'm back in the, the you know, worldly ways of thinking about work, um, you know, again, I'm reframing. Yes. You know, the, the, the way I think about work and, and, and. Yeah. And you say you will often um, find yourself praying for your client, the clients that may be driving you crazy. Yes, at right, in the right. morning, you know, when you pray for them at noon. <laughs> yeah. Love your enemies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I just would take this moment to note that uh, probably our listeners here, you know, there's some writers who struggle with their identity. There's parents who realize having kids is hard. You know, there's workers who, you know, hope for this career and ended up in that one. There's, there's pastors and who realize that this is not all they hoped it would be. I, life is hard. It is quite hard. And, and I want to acknowledge in the middle of this, you know, some of this can sound like a oh, rosy, you know, perfect your life and hear your life hacks to make <laughs> life easy. But I think life is really hard. I think uh, being a lawyer is difficult. I think being a writer is like getting in a cage match with your soul every time you go to the notebook. I think being a parent is the one of the <laughs> the hardest things that I've ever done. And if you, if people are like me, you can you live half a day, and you're at the end of your rope yeah. because the kids are hard this morning. Your spouse is sick. You know your parents are aging. Your your work is not all it's cracked up to be. And you get to lunchtime. And it's like, well, I just, I can't, I can't do this. Like, this is so hard and I'm not adequate. I'm not living up. I, it's, I must've made wrong decisions. All of these narratives, again, of legalism, as if our identity is now diminished because life is hard, but no, no, no. 
in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Yeah. Yeah, I have overcome the world, Jesus says to us. And for me, prayer is the place where like, we, we stop and say, wow, it is hard. But Lord, you have overcome the world. How, how can I rearrange the rest of my day? How can I think about this issue that I'm in? How can I look up in the, the lament or the despair that I am in today and say, you, you nonetheless have overcome the world? I'm at least going to say that back to you and confess that mm-hmm. because words create new realities. And I don't care if you don't feel it. I don't care if it's a rope prayer that you say all the time every day. There's a reason I tell my boys, you must look at your brother and say sorry. I know they don't mean it, but I know that words change us. Mm-hmm. And I'm helping, I'm helping them learn that words lead the heart. And, and prayers like this lead our wild horses of hearts. I mean, they're like a bit in our mouth that guide us back towards the love of God. You know, follow your heart and you'll end up in a bad place every day. Yeah. Follow the, follow the prayers of scripture, the words that Jesus taught us to say. That will put the bit in your wild horse of a heart and turn it back towards God. And that's what I need. Yeah. Every day. Yeah, that's great. And I love also what you say about evening prayer. You know, the evening is a time, can be a time of just severe self-criticism. You know, I, yeah. I was going to do all this today and I didn't do those things. And what's wrong with me? You know? Yeah. And, and evening prayer reminds us of what's actually true and real mm-hmm. in the world. Um. Okay, so before we run out of time, because we are running out of time, because this is too interesting to to slow down, um, (laughs) I want to talk about the connections between, this is a podcast for writers, um, Yes, and I want to talk about the connections between these ideas that you've just, I mean, we actually have been covering a lot of what I wanted to cover in this regard, the connection between prayer and writing, Um, Mm -hmm. this idea, you know, prayer as a way of of uh, sort of agreeing with God yes. about reality um, and also expressing the image of God in using words to, yes. I mean, I, I don't, I think there are ways to get this wrong, right. Uh, of create, I, I don't want to say this. I don't want to, I don't want to give the wrong impression. Um, there are, there are important ways that words create new realities. Yes. Um, Yes. Those new realities have to agree with bigger realities that we didn't create, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but you thought we are, about we are small, small C creators, you know, All not right. capital C. Um, but it's real. And Jonathan, one of the reasons I was so honored and excited that you invited me to be on this podcast was because I was like, oh my gosh, it's called The Habit yeah. and it's about writing. And if there's any intersection of things that I love, it's, it's writing and habit. Um, yeah. I, I tell people, uh, I mentioned earlier that in China, I, I wrote a lot of fiction and poetry. Um, I still do. And wh- one of the things that my 22-year-old self would have been appalled to realize is that my 30-year-old self's first book would be on spiritual nonfiction and Christian on the habit. And I've been like, oh my gosh, you know, I thought I was much more creative than that. But, <laughs> but, but as it turns out, I think the Lord has graciously brought me to a place where I've realized that real creativity happens when you can discipline yourself away from distraction. And so I actually love talking about the intersection of these things um, because uh, I find that the habit of writing 
is a fascinating way to, if you're disciplined about the habit of writing, uh, then you sit down, you remove distractions, you insist on maybe something like an hour of putting words on the page. And it's just awful. You know, it's hard, like, it's bad. You're writing terrible stuff. You've got all these criticisms of self-doubt over your shoulder. But then, you know, sometime maybe around the 40 minute mark, you write a sentence and you're like, well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and then and then something starts happening. And I think what's amazing about the discipline of, of writing is it's so the same for me. Like, like I always spend the first bit of my writing time just agonizing over how bad it is. And then something about uh, just staying in the rhythm and staying in the groove actually starts to produce stuff that's, you know, only kind of half bad and you get somewhere. And I, this is the power of creating. I mean, we're, words change things. We were meant to do this. I think writers have a unique and wonderful gift to be like God in a very specific way. And that is to speak words into the void and create new realities. Um, but we don't do that by suddenly being inspired by a metaphorical muse at some point. I mean, there's nothing more, uh, there's, there's nothing more mystical. I mean, it's, I just don't think it's true. I, I think, I think our, the way that we become inspired in the Holy spirit and the gift of having a vision for life is by paying attention to the world. And that takes good habits, right? I mean, it takes a resisting distraction. And so these two things, like the beauty, the beauty of creativity and the discipline of habit are now no longer opposed to me. They're intertwined in almost like this DNA helix that is, that is the writing life. Yeah. I, I think I, I would adjust one, your phrasing in, in one regard. I think there's plenty mystical about it, about writing. It's just mm. that because it's mystical, we have no control over it. So we've got to pay attention to what we do have control over. You know? And so the habit... Um, we've talked about how the habit shuts off your brain. That's where a lot of the magic comes from is your brain being shut. Like that that part of our brain that, you know, so you control what you can control and that frees up something that gives us access to something that we don't have access to through our, through our conscious brain thinking part. That's a, that's a much better way of putting it. Um, I actually, as I said, the word mystical, I said, I, I was, had some self-consciousness in my head and you just nailed it down. I think there's a magic about writing. There's a magic about creativity. It's, it's mystical. It's wild. You don't understand it. Um, it's just not opposed to the discipline, yeah, you know? Right. I, and I think moving away from the idea of the muse and more towards the Holy Spirit and realizing there, there is a muse. <laughs> and he's with you. <laughs> he's always with you. Yeah. Um, are are we present back to him? Are we opening up our eyes to the world that he's created? I mean, d- distraction, I think, is one of the greatest sins against the Christian imagination, right? I mean, what the Bible asks us to believe and see in the world is absolutely wild, right? Like absolutely yeah. wild <laughs> that that angels and demons exist. That, you know that that a virgin became impregnated, that, that God actually made something from nothing, that a man got out of the grave and, and uh, ascended to heaven. I mean, to really believe what Christianity tells us takes a healthy, robust, grown, grown up imagination. <laughs> um, and, and, a, and let's say a childlike imagination. It, it, it takes both of these, these things. And I think distraction is one of the things that just dulls us over and over to the actual like, vibrant possibility that every day is. Um, and, and I like that the discipline of focus 
and setting time aside to write actually then is the narrow gate through which you enter this mystical and magical world of all the things that God created that you, you didn't have a big enough imagination yeah. in, right. until he started working in you. you. You had no idea how sparkling yeah. the world was mm-hmm. until he started showing you the light of his muse. So I'll, I'll embrace the word mystical with you for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are, we are, uh, have gone over time. Um, so I, I'm going to ask you the, the last question that I always ask. Who are the writers who make you want to write? I love that question. Um, the short list of my, the writers that really make me want to write are the, the ones I keep going back to over and over. Um, T.S. Eliot, hmm. Frederick Buechner, um, Madeline Langle, C.S. Lewis, a lot of what these people have in common to me, and there's so many others, but what, what these people have in common to me is they lived lives of faith and creativity that intertwined, and, and intellect, faith, creativity, and intellect that intertwined in such a way that they were comfortable and well-known for their essays, mm-hmm. for their poetry, for their fiction for their conversation with friends across their life. Um, I'd probably add Wendell Berry into that list as I, as I think about, there, there's a kind of writer that I really want to be like, and that's one that lives the fullness of the writing life and the fullness of the faithful life. And um, I think that's part of the reason why I can get as, as excited about working on a short story as I can, a legal contract as I can, a book about habits. It, it's because all of these are vibrant with, the, the beautiful world of rationality, of imagination, of logic, and of love that, that God gave us. And so when I read these writers, I see a robust, big, you know, capital W sense of writing. And they make me want to write more. They make me want to think outside of one medium and, and try to say something in poetry that nonfiction will never be able to say, or try to explain something in a contract that um, you know, a, a story would never be able to create. So that's that's my short list. Yeah, well, great. Well, Justin Whitmore, thank you so much for taking this much time with me. And uh, I, I think your book is so helpful. And um, so thanks for writing it. Well, Jonathan, I don't say this lightly. This was a delightful conversation. So thank you so much for leading us. Well, it's good to meet you. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.